0: Hi there, I'm Travis, and this is Why Is That, the podcast. Uh, Uh, Welcome back to Why Is That. In comedy, one of the most tried-and-true methods of getting a laugh is someone intentionally or unintentionally injuring themselves. I do not know what it is about someone face-planting into a window or getting hit by the back end of a swinging ladder, but those gags never seem to fail to draw a laugh. Physical comedy, meaning the manipulation of the body for humorous effect, has its origins in the Commedia dell'arte, which was an early form of professional theater in Italy that started in the 16th century, though there is evidence, going all the way back to the ancient Egyptians, of humans enjoying the physical type comedy. A subset of physical comedy that emphasizes an exaggerated physical activity to draw laughs is known as slapstick, and it also originated in the Commedia dell'Arte. Slapstick derives its name from one of the instruments that created the earliest known live special effects. This instrument was known as the batacchio, which translates into English as slapstick. As the name implies, the instrument consisted of two wooden boards that were joined by a hinge, and when they slapped together, it would elicit a loud slapping or clapping sound. This allowed the actors to whap each other without hurting one another, while also creating a noise that would be heard up in the cheap seats. It was a simple and effective way to create a comical moment. It was always an art for the humble vaudevillian veteran to create a new gig, shtick, or routine to bring about new laughs from their audience. One of the staples of any physical comedian's toolkit is the slip and fall, The thing that causes the slip changes sometimes. Maybe it is a person trying to walk on ice, or crossing a wet floor, or any other number of obstacles. One way or another, that person is going down. Something that you probably do not know about me from listening to this podcast is that I love physical comedy. In fact, the first thing I ever uploaded to the internet for consumption by internet strangers was a YouTube video of 16-year-old me trying to do physical comedy. I got hit with a cane, a purse, got maced, and things like that. It was my attempt to follow in the footsteps of the legendary physical comedians like Charlie Chaplin, The Three Stooges, John Ritter, Mr. Bean, Chris Farley, and countless others. I will admit that my attempt fell far short of those comedic giants. A joke that I did not attempt, but is considered a timeless classic technique for a physical comedian, is that of the banana peel slip and fall. It is a fairly straightforward joke, a banana peel is thrown on the ground, an unsuspecting person accidentally steps on it, the peel causes the person to slip, the person comes crashing onto the floor, and cues the raucous laughter. The banana peel slip and fall has been used to great effect by the likes of Charlie Chaplin, Laurel and Hardy, Woody Allen, and Looney Tunes. It is so well known that the Mythbusters featured it in an episode to determine whether or not a banana was slippery. In the entertainment industry, it is such a widely known trope that screenwriters actively try to avoid it or subvert the expectation. Subverting the expectation of the banana slip has been done so many times that it too has become a cliché. For instance, a writer in the 1930s asked Charlie Chaplin how he could stage a banana peel in a different way to help the joke seem new again. Chaplin suggested showing a close-up of the banana, pan to the person walking toward it, and then have the person step over the banana, only to then fall down a manhole. That means that old gag was already played out 90 years ago, and yet it has persisted to this day and is even used in things like video games. Anyone want to play Mario Kart? As you might expect, my reaction to such a time-honored joke was to wonder how it originated, why they picked the banana peel, and why it has proved to be such a classic when so many other 150-year-old jokes have fallen by the wayside. Luckily, there is a good answer to these questions. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth or so says the book of Genesis. In that book, we are later introduced to the forbidden fruit that hangs on the tree of knowledge of good and evil. In Western Christianity, we generally associate that piece of fruit as being an apple. It has been suggested that this association arose from a Latin pun in which Eve ate malum, the Latin for apple, and contracted malum, the Latin for evil. Wherever the association arose does not change that the book does not actually specify a specific fruit. In fact, in some Christian and Muslim traditions and translations, it is a banana that hung from the tree, and after the fruit was eaten, it was the banana leaf, and not the fig leaf that covered their nakedness. Interestingly, the Quran characterizes the original sin of Adam and Eve as a slip, as in they slipped from God's path. In the Islamic tradition that holds that the banana was the forbidden fruit, does that mean that Adam and Eve were the first to ever slip on a banana? See, I can be funny. The banana is possibly the world's oldest cultivated crop, with evidence of cultivation in the highlands of New Guinea at least 7,000 years ago. The banana we know today is the world's number one most consumed fruit, and number four overall dietary staple after rice, wheat, and corn. In America, the banana is consumed more than the apple and orange combined. It is relatively high in calories, fairly inexpensive, sweet tasting, no seeds, and goes with just about everything. That has made for a juggernaut in the worldwide trade. That has made for a juggernaut in worldwide trade. However, despite that juggernaut status and position as the number four dietary staple in the world, the banana is still a primarily local product with only 20% of its worldwide production being shipped outside of its local market. In poorer parts of Africa, where many banana trees grow, it has become the main dietary staple of its people. And if you know the origin of the term Banana Republic, then you know just how much it has enriched the everyday banana growers of Central and South America. Despite those less-than-savory aspects, this sweet treat has, in the past 180 years, overcome limitations in trade routes, overall vulnerability of the fruit, and the lack of refrigeration to dominate worldwide markets, and become a familiar sight in the produce section of all of our supermarkets, grocery, and convenience stores. In order to understand our joke, we first need a bit more context on that journey to our table. During the Age of Exploration, the Portuguese ventured forth into the world and encountered the banana on the Atlantic coast of Africa. They were intrigued by the fruit and brought it back with them for cultivation on the Canary Islands. The Spanish and Portuguese brought the fruit to their American colonies in the 1500s. For the next 300 years, the cultivation and consumption of the banana was a local business. This was primarily a technological issue as there was just no effective way to export the bananas to other parts of the world. In the early 1800s, a small amount of banana started to show up in select port cities in the United States and Europe. It was often a way for a simple sailor to make a couple extra dollars during shore leave. The banana was more of an exotic treat than a staple, but as the century wore on, technology and the fruit evolved. First, the French naturalist Nicholas Bowden visited Southeast Asia and brought back with him corms of the banana variety that would come to be known as the Gros Michel. He brought them to the island of Martinique in the Caribbean. After Bowden's death, the French botanist jean francois Pierre brought the Gros Michel, or Big Mike, to Jamaica in 1835, and from there it spread to Honduras, Costa Rica, and other parts of Central America. It would quickly come to dominate the worldwide banana trade for the next 120 years. Big Mike was called that for its thicker peel. The thicker peel made it more durable for the cross-ocean transport. Even more important, though, was the development of refrigerated cargo ships. Large fruit companies were leaders in the development of refrigerated boats due to the markets it opened, and refrigerated boats built specifically for the shipment of bananas were quickly known as banana boats. Bananas flooded into markets and quickly supplanted apples as the most popular fruit in the United States. One of the contributing factors to the boost in popularity beyond those already discussed was the gradual acceptance of germ theory starting with the work of Louis Pasteur in the 1850s. This was an opportune time, as in 1866, Carl B. Frank began the first planned importation of bananas from northern Panama to New York City. Advertisers quickly took advantage of increased germ consciousness and positioned the banana peel as a built-in sanitary wrapper. Germs would not penetrate the peel, and when you were done, you could just throw the wrapper into the gutter. It was a perfect system that allowed its consumers to enjoy a tasty snack without fear of the pesky germs that could be found on an apple skin. The issue that came with throwing the sanitary wrapper in the gutter is that 19th century urban sanitation was trash. In a rural farming community where bananas were grown, the banana peel wasn't as big of an issue. Banana peels in our mind are natural, and tossing them on the ground probably is not an issue because they will decompose. However, while bananas will only last a couple weeks if composted, the peel will stick around for approximately two years waiting to decompose on the ground. In cities of over 100,000 people, that can become a major problem very quickly. A decade and a half prior to Carl B. Frank's first planned Panamanian banana importation to New York saw the city become the first in the United States to reach a population of 500,000, larger than Baltimore, Boston, and New Orleans combined. New Yorkers started feasting on bananas in a time when trash cans did not appear on any street corner in the city. The sanitary wrapper that was the banana peel was instead tossed into the gutter and left to rot. At the time, there were no street sweepers, and even in the wealthy areas, trash collection was practically non-existent. New York of the early 19th century instead had relied on pigs. In 1842, Charles Dickens visited New York for the first time, and he published his experience in a travel log named American Notes. He detailed his experience with those pigs. Here is one excerpt. They are the city scavengers, these pigs. Ugly brutes they are, having for the most part scanty brown backs, like the lids of old horsehair trunks spotted with unwholesome black blotches. Just as evening is closing in, you will see them roaming towards bed by scores, eating their way to the last. It is difficult to measure as no one kept track, but Catherine McNuer, a professor at Portland State University, estimated in her book, Taming Manhattan, That the city held more than 20,000 hogs in the early 1820s, which would have amounted to one hog per every five humans. It is unknown exactly how this number changed in the 20 years before Dickens arrived as the population of the city tripled. The main purpose of the pig was a kind of social safety net for poor New Yorkers. A family who had a pig was protected from hunger by knowing they could always slaughter one of their pigs or bring in a quick buck by selling a pig to a local butcher. Keeping a pig in the growing city was particularly effective as the pig fit easily into the fast urbanizing ecosystem. Unlike its livestock brethren of chickens, cows, or sheep, a pig can adapt to urban areas and will eat just about anything. As the city citizens piled the spoiled food, offal, and vegetable refuse onto the streets, the pigs were released into the city to chow down on the garbage. While poor people liked the pigs for the economic stability they provided for their families, wealthy New Yorkers were not as impressed. Pigs were seen as dirty disease carriers. A prosecutor brought a case against the pigs of New York that charged them with attacking children, defecating on people, and compelling ladies to view swine copulating in public view. They also used the media to rail against the pigs and the poor. A New York Times article described shanties in which the pigs and the Patricks lie down together while the little ones of Celtic and Swinish origin lie miscellaneous, with billy goats here and there interspersed. In response, the city banned pigs repeatedly over the first half of the 19th century, but every time hogcatchers were sent to the shanties to round up the pigs, riots erupted with fists and spoiled vegetables thrown at the hog catchers in equal measure until they retreated empty-handed. In 1845, the city established its first professional police force, and this helped end the reign of the pig in New York. Right as the pigs run as the city's garbage collectors ended, the banana appeared. It started to litter the gutters and sidewalks with no one to pick them up. With banana peels on the sidewalks, comedy would tell us that the next thing would be that people would start falling. So, are bananas actually slippery? In 2009, the Mythbusters crew decided to tackle the myth of slipping on a banana. In the episode, they threw a banana peel on the ground, put on some pads for safety, and walked down the line onto the peel to see if they would fall. They did not. They then filled up a large square with banana peels and ran through it. Lots of falling happened in that trial run. In the end, they deemed it plausible that someone might fall on a banana peel, but myth busted that a banana peel causes a person to slip and fall 100%, or even a majority of the time. A more scientific study on the banana peel slip and fall was done in 2014 by a team led by Kiyoshi Mabuchi. It measured the frictional coefficient of a banana peel and found that on a common floor material, the banana is about 0.07. It was estimated that polysaccharide follicular gel played the dominant role in the lubricating effect of banana skin. When we step on a banana skin by the usual angle of 15 degrees, the sudden change in friction can make us slip and fall. According to epidemiological research, the risk of fall exceeds 90% if the frictional coefficient is less than 0.1. This made the banana peel the slipperiest of the fruit peels measured, which were the apple peels, citron skin, and tangerine. The team found that the lubricating effect of a banana peel is excellent. In the end, the science then supports that one might slip on a banana peel. The primary sources support it too. Jacob Bopp, a chauffeur of number 1137 Willoughby Avenue, Brooklyn, slipped on a banana peel yesterday and died within a few minutes of a fracture of the skull. The evening World. October 30th, 1917. Rule 2. Throw skins and nutshells into the rubbish cans. A bit of orange or banana peel carelessly thrown upon a pavement may make one cripple. Think safety. Lillian M. Waldo. Safety first for little folks. First steps in civics. 1918. In spite of all that has been said by the papers about throwing banana peelings and such like things on the sidewalks, the custom prevails in Memphis to an extent not equaled anywhere that we know of. On almost every corner there is a fruit stand around which these sidewalks are littered with these dangerous parings, and not a day passes that someone does not receive a fall from slipping on them. Memphis Daily Appeal, April 22, 1870. As the real-life accidents mounted, the simple fact that a person falling down is funny started to occur to people around communities. The oldest example I could find of a humorous anecdote that included slipping on a banana peel was an 1858 story in the Bellevue Gazette that recounted the tale of a wedding day whose climax was a groom slipping on a banana peel and ripping his pants. Here's the relevant excerpt. We were just entering the parlor door when down I went slap on the oilcloth, pulling Sal after me. Some cussed fellow had dropped a banana skin on the floor and it floored me. It's split an awful hole in my cashmere right under my dress coat tail. Bellevue Gazette, May 4th, 1858. This was followed with a poem by J. Charles Davis titled Bananas in 1885. One rhyme is as follows. And silently place it where it will catch a passing heel. Treacherous banana peel. Printed banana peel jokes became popular, and good ones would get reprinted in newspapers around the nation. It's unclear when these printed jokes made the jump to live action. The earliest I found was in a 1890 review of a vaudeville show in the Pittsburgh Dispatch. It's not often nowadays that a minstrel man or a vaudeville comedian gets off a fresh joke. Judging from the applause which followed one fired at the audience in the Academy of Music last night, this one is fresh. I was standing in front of a church last Sunday, said the funny man. When I stepped on a banana peel and was precipitated head foremost to the pavement, I recovered my equilibrium only to face a policeman who said I must go to the station house. What for? I asked. Because you have made a dive out of a church. Pittsburgh Dispatch, August 22nd, 1890 A 1902 review of another show had this to say. Mr. Good, of the vaudeville team of Good & Routine, was walking down the street when he stepped upon a banana peel and came to the sidewalk with much the same force that characterizes his famous tumble from the slapstick in the hand of his partner. Banana Peel gig transitioned smoothly from the vaudeville stage to early films. It is unknown exactly which film was the first to feature the banana peel slip and fall, but perhaps the studio that most perfected it was Keystone Studios. Keystone was founded in 1912 by actor Max Sennett, who was best known for the slapstick group The Keystone Cops. The 1913 Keystone Studios film A Healthy Neighborhood may be the earliest example of a filmed version of the banana peel gag. It inspired the following review. Another screamingly funny comedy of the nonsensical sort, Ford Sterling gives a most enjoyable characterization of Dr. Noodles, who places banana skins on the walk in order to get patients. This reel works up into a highly diverting situation, a good comedy number. Moving Picture World, Volume 18, October 25, 1913. Keystone Studios produced films for 23 years, from 1912 to 1935. In that time frame, they utilized the banana peel gag and many other classics of slapstick comedy. One of their biggest stars was Charlie Chaplin, who utilized the banana peel gag in multiple movies. The biggest vaudeville stars of early Hollywood perfected the technique of slipping on a banana and inducing laughter. As it continued to reap loud laughter, studios knew it was good business to keep including it. In 1917, the Ogden Standard newspaper published the article, Slapstick or Refined Comedy? Take Your Pick. In it, the banana peel slip and fall was used as a classic example of the slapstick variety, which highlights the sheer number of times the gig was used in the early days of cinema. This is in part due to the effective and straightforward nature of the slip and fall in the era of silent films. As the gag continued to be used throughout the years, it became the classic that we still know today when it is more often used as an homage or trope rather than someone trying to be an original. The entertainer most often credited with inventing the banana peel pratfall was known as Sliding Billy Watson. Billy was known for sliding onto the stage from the wings to make a particularly dramatic entrance. As one of the most successful and wealthy vaudeville performers of his day, he incorporated the banana peel gag into his act after seeing a man on the street attempt to keep his balance after he slipped on a banana peel. Billy found it so amusing, he knew he had an instant classic. Based on the newspapers we quoted earlier, and the fact that Billy was born in 1876 and started performing around 1900, we can say for certain that he was not the actual originator, but perhaps he was the biggest popularizer and perfecter. In summary, the banana peel slip and fall originated thanks to the unique time period when the banana began to be imported to growing cities with poor sanitation. As banana peels littered the streets, gutters, and sidewalks, people walking by started to slip on those peels. When you are the person who falls on a banana, it sucks. But when you see someone fall across the street, it is pretty funny. It is likely that a comedian or enterprising vaudevillian like Billy Watson saw someone fall and realized it was the perfect addition to their routine. From there, it entertained audiences the world over and became a slapstick staple. Unlike many other jokes of old, it does not grow old thanks to the slip and fall always being funny and bananas being just as popular today as a 100 years ago. The biggest differences that make it seem outdated today is just the sheer number of times it has been used and the improvement in city sanitation. In New York City today, you are unlikely to encounter a loose peel thanks to garbage cans and increased litter law penalties. But in the 19th and early 20th centuries, these restrictions did not yet exist. Additionally, the banana peel of today is different from the one 100 years ago. You remember the Big Mike banana I mentioned? Well, it died out in the 1950s and has been replaced by the thinner-skinned Cavendish banana. The thick-skinned Big Mike may have been even slippier. That is all for today's episode. Thanks for listening to Why Is That? As always, the show is hosted on Acast and can be found anywhere podcasts are streamed, including Podcast Republic, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and probably wherever you are listening to this right now. Be sure to hit subscribe so you never miss an episode. Until next time, cheers.